This call is now being recorded. Hey, everybody. You all may know me as Jay Mace from Beyond the Album Cover, but for this podcast episode, I'll be known as Jarrell Mason, and this is Beyond the Cover. We're going to have a discussion on this podcast about race, privilege, class, and everything else that's been taking place in our country in the past week with the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and also the death of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. And on the phone with me right now, I have my good friend, Mr. Elijah Carbajal, educator for Aztec Municipal Schools and a former co-worker of mine. I taught at the same school as Mr. Carbajal. So, Elijah, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you coming through and sitting down with me. Jarrell, thank you very much. It's an honor to be a part of this podcast with you. I uh, appreciate and feel very, very honored that you would even consider me. Oh, man, it's definitely not a problem, and I think that is what the form of the podcast is for, especially for this episode, is to use it to amplify bigger issues that have gone far too long unchecked and not talked about in our country. Mm-hmm. And it's important, yes. I think you're you're absolutely right. Now is now is definitely the. I mean, it's long overdue. I shouldn't say that now is the time. The time it's it's been the time for the for a long time, um, and unfortunately, we've had to. You know, the black community has endured a lot. People of color have endured a lot, um, especially in the recent with recent events unfolding. And so, um, you know, I'm glad that these events are sparking these conversations and that. We're seeing a lot more educators reach out and, you know, really take a stand um, with, you know, the black community and Black Lives Matter. And, you know, so I'm I'm happy to be having this conversation with you. Okay. And uh, first off, tell a little bit about your background, your upbringing, and as far as your interactions with African-Americans growing up. So I grew up and I was um, – a I knew that I wanted to be a teacher when I was about 14 years old. Um, at the time, I wanted to be a music teacher, and so I was really doing my best to study and practice. And then um, about halfway through my college career, I made the decision to switch to just general education. So um, upon graduating, that was in 2014, December 2014, so I took a job in Albuquerque Public Schools where I taught for uh, the remainder of that year and two more school years. Um, at Navajo Elementary, um, I moved to Aztec, New Mexico, and that's where I've been for the last three years, and I've taught fourth grade. Most of those years, I did teach third grade um, one year in Albuquerque. Um, I really strive to make school a place that kids love to be at and one that they are excited to go to. Um, I don't believe that you know school is meant to be you know, just a dictatorship where teachers are in charge and kids don't, you know, they just have to fall in line and do what they're told. Um, obviously, the teacher is the authoritative one. Um, but um, giving kids a little bit of control and things as far as, like, you know, rules of the classroom, how they want to learn, um, you know, their own, you know, it, just little individual things about them I really try to pay attention to. And I do my best to make the learning as engaging and as fun as possible. Um, as far as my interactions um, with um, black people growing up, um, I always had, my parents, I will, I will say this to their credit, they did a fantastic job at teaching that, 
um, you know, I grew up in a Christian family, and so we were taught that, you know, every person, you know, is made, is beautifully and wonderfully made in the sight of God, regardless of skin color. Um, and so I had this idea, like, okay, it's like, don't be, don't be racist, but I, I didn't really have a whole, like, a big interaction with black people growing up. Um, I was homeschooled, and so I didn't have any black peers growing up. I didn't have any black teachers growing up. Um, in fact, there was a, a question on Facebook that I had saw recently where somebody asked, when was, the, when did you, what grade were you, or how old were you when you had your first black teacher? And I was one who had to look at that and say, I've never had a black teacher, like not even in college. Um, I did, ha I've had the pleasure of teaching black students, um, but just a small number of them. Um, I've primarily had, you know, Hispanics, um, white students and Native American students. Um, but I have had the privilege of teaching some really um, bright uh, black students um, throughout my career. Um, I'm thinking of a couple in particular that I taught when I was in uh, third grade that were just um, a joy to have uh, really in the classroom and brought a lot of um, laughter. Um, but also I got to see um, a side of them that, you know, I. You know, to me, because I hadn't taught a lot of black students, and so, you know, this is something, this is one of those conversations that we have to have where I didn't have a, you know, uh, an understanding of, you know, what black culture was like, you know, even from a child's perspective. And so for them to talk about home life and, you know, their family and, you know, things that they go through and, you know, just all those different things, it was really kind of eye-opening to me. Um, so I enjoyed, I've enjoyed having them in my, as my former students and, um, yeah, so that's a little bit about me. All right. And as you know, for me, it was quite a big difference coming out from North Carolina to New Mexico mm -hmm. where the representation of African Americans is low. So when an African American student sees a teacher like myself when I was down at Albuquerque I kind of had that extra sense of I got to be extra on top of my game because they're looking at me because they don't really see a lot of black people here and for me coming from North Carolina it was a bit of a culture shock because the high school where I went to the town that I lived in predominantly African-American I could count the number of white kids that graduated from my high school with me on my finger. My wife was just shocked by that at the low number of white kids because a lot of them lived in the next county over, went to a predominantly white high school, or they would go to a private school. So I didn't really have a lot of interaction with white people until I went to college, and that was where I felt like a – big fish in a small pond and kind of understood what people felt when everybody looked at you to uphold the standard for African-Americans to not be the stereotype because you may be one or two in the room and you have to be extra on point to make sure that you don't reinforce stereotypes that some people may have because of limited interactions with people of the opposite race. Mm -hmm. And I, I can imagine like the kind of the kind of pressure that that puts on on you. And and again, I'm I'm, I'm speaking from a place of you know, and I've, I've had to recognize that own 
for the privilege that I have as being a Hispanic in New Mexico, you know, I'm not the minority in this state, you know what I'm saying? And so to me, you know, that's something that's never crossed my mind. And so I think that's just amazing. I don't know. It's amazing um, and sad, kind of the, the pressure of the stereotypes and the pressure to, you know, to be more than that because you are more than that. You know, I've seen, you know, I've got to see you. I didn't see you teach in the classroom, but I've had interactions with you before. I've had, you know, black students and none of them have fit any of those stereotypes, you know, that, um, that you might hear of. Mm, definitely that is always that extra added layer of you have to be better than because you're taught at an early age make sure you dress appropriately make sure your English is proper make sure that you don't give them a reason to think that you're lazy you're uneducated you're less than you always want to hold yourself up high with a greater esteem of dignity and it is drilled into you at an early age, especially in the region of the country where I come from, in the South. The town where I grew up in, population was under, still is under a 1,000 people. Um, Everybody living at or below poverty. Agricultural textiles was main source of economy, and that's no longer there. So really the only sources of employment for the local town people are your Fast food jobs, grocery store jobs, working at your local paper mill, Lowe's Distribution Center, or research plant out on Highway 901 in Halifax, North Carolina. So you always knew growing up that if you were young, African-American, North CCC, you had to get out, make something of yourself, go to school, military, or anything to advance yourself and to not come back home unless it was time for you to retire and settle down. Now, for you, what was the first thing that came to your mind when you saw the video of George Floyd being murdered in broad daylight by the police officer in uh, Minneapolis? Honestly, the first word that came to my mind was just straight up um, evil and and probably hatred. you know, that, you know, it was very clearly that that was absolutely 100% murder. Um, and it's, and it, you know, it pleases me that justice is going to be served. Um, and, you know, but it's, it's, it saddens me to see that because I'm looking at, you know, somebody, you know, I'm watching somebody beg for help. I'm watching somebody say, I, you know, I can't breathe. George Floyd is very clear on that. I can't breathe, and that officer knew that, and that officer didn't do the right thing. Um, and I believe it stems, it all stems from hatred. It stems from hatred um, and racism, just just flat out. Um, I was enraged by it. It took me a couple, it took me a couple days to kind of say something about it. Um, I don't have a, you know, a major platform, but I do have somewhat of a platform on social media. And so I did feel like, you know, I need to show some kind of support for this too. But it took me a while to kind of put together, you know, kind of sort through the emotions that I was feeling. Um, what were what was your reaction to, to all of this? My reaction to George Floyd's death and then preceded that with the incident that happened at the Ramble in Central Park with Christian Cooper and then the death of Ma Aubrey and Brianna Taylor. For me, it was like, 
no, not this again, not again, not again, not again, because not as again. we've seen with all of the deaths with Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, Walter Scott, Eric Garner, even as far back as Amadou Diallo in 1999, um, he was a young man in New York. Police thought that he was pulling for a gun. He was reaching for a wallet, and police shot him 41 times. So you have all of these deaths, and then also the traumas of slavery and the still embedded racism in our country, and it just feels like you're just kicking a man or a person when they're down, when they haven't fully gotten over the psychological warfare that's been played since we were first brought over here as inhabitants of this country against our free will, building a lot of the wealth, taking care of a lot of the children that were living in the homes of the plantations and never felt like we got our fair share, even though we've made some progress. But as we've seen, the more things change, the more things stay the same. That's absolutely right. And that, to me, is a, you know, it's a powerful statement that you said when I asked for your reaction, your, your words are not again. And that, to me, is so disheartening and so, it's so sad that that's what comes into, you know, into the minds of black people is not again, not another one. And um, the death of George Floyd is, is just an atrocity. And, it, and it's, it's so sad to, right. to see that play out, you know. Mm. And I feel that his death would not be in vain because as you've seen with the protests that's been going on all over the world and all the sweeping right. changes that have been made in all facets as of the recording of this podcast, NASCAR announced that they'll be no longer flying or allowing the Confederate flags at any of their events, which for me, coming from the South, is huge. That's a big step. Wow. Very huge. Yeah, uh, you know, because NASCAR runs deep in North Carolina. A lot of the race car drivers, most of them have their team headquarters in and around Charlotte. Some drivers are from the state. So for them to do that, for me, felt like a watershed moment where eyeballs are on us as a country to see what are we going to do to fix this problem. And I think to fix this problem that white folks have to have conversation with white folks to discuss, hey, we have benefited when others have not benefited from the same privileges that we've been allowed. i linking it to being a kid that's always been able to cut in front of the line in order to get something to eat, while you had one group of students that's been waiting patiently in the back of the line for a long time, and they haven't really been able to move to the front of the line because of rules and laws that says just because you look a certain way, you can't go to the front of the line. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a uh, you gave me that analogy there, and that's the perfect analogy. I'm definitely going to use that um, in this next coming school year to, to have kind of spark some of those conversations with my students. Right. And 
I never got a chance to do this lesson when I was teaching, but maybe you can do it. But I wanted to frame a curriculum and lessons about racism by having the kids watching Disney Zootopia because it pretty much talks about the same thing with all the different animals living in their different side of the neighborhood. And I won't spoil it for you, but that was what I was planning on doing with my students that I never got a chance to because I felt like it was my duty being the only African-American teacher there that I had to tell them about racism, that people were treated unfairly because of the color of their skin, and they weren't allowed the same privileges that maybe Johnny and Susie had because of systemic laws that were put in place to limit upward mobility and a chance for advancement because if you take a look at laws that were written in the books as far as redlining, gerrymandering, and it just all screams, we just want to keep you where you are. Stay in your place. Don't make no ways. And even though we have the likes of Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Huey P. Newton, Fred Hampton, Bobby Seale, Angela Davis and everyone that was involved in the civil rights movement via either the nonviolent method that Dr. King preached or the Black Panthers method and Malcolm X method that they preached about doing for self and forget asking for a seat at the table, build the table. And it's just important for kids to learn that not everything was all rosy if you look like me. Mm-hmm. And that's where I feel like sometimes when people, they have a fascination with the rhythm, the culture of African Americans, but don't want the blues that comes with it, the sorrows, mm-hmm. the heartache, the pain, the trauma, the separation of families, the dreams that were deferred due to a system that said you're not equal to this man, so therefore you cannot achieve what you want to achieve. You have to go through your life being bitter and angry and hateful, saying, why couldn't it be me? Because I was never given a fair shake. Just to think about a lot of men and women in those days had the ability to want to achieve more, but because of the privileges of white folks and mm-hmm. and of those who benefited from these rules said, no, we're not going to do for you what we already have. So you think when once we got our foot in the door with the legislation that, were, that was passed in the 60s, that, okay, we finally arrived. But I think this is coming from my perspective. That's where, and I was kind of taking off the ball a bit, because some felt that, hey, I got minds, so I'm not going to look after the whole of the community and just go about my life, but realize that just because you got a nice house, a nice car, you're still black at the end of the day. Because for me, every time I get in my car and drive, and when I see a police car, whether they're in front, in the back or the side of me. I always get tense because I don't know if they're going to pull me over. And it is a feeling that you don't want to have because you feel like 
man, what if this cop had a bad day today? What if I say, officer, I'm not armed. My hands are by the wheel. I'm going to produce for you my license and registration. I'm going to reach for them. Once again, I am not armed. And just knowing that if he or she has a bad day, knowing that if I make the wrong move, that that could possibly be the end of my life. And that's a scary feeling, knowing that when you go into your car and go out, there's a possibility you may not make it home. And unfortunately, you know, it's, you know, that, that's a reality that you've, that you've kind of lived with your whole life. And now, you know, we've seen the video of Ahmad Arbery, you know, and, and not even being able to go out and exercise freely, you know, without having that worry of, you know, this might be the last time I go running. And unfortunately, you know, it was, and, and, you know, that's, that's sad that, you know, to me that people have to live with that fear. That's just, that's wrong. You know, we, you know, this is a land of the free. Everyone should be, have to, should be able to live free from that fear. And it sickens me to know that there are, you know, who are people who are instilling that kind of fear um, within, you know, the black community. Mm-hmm. And when did you recognize for yourself that I got to look at myself in the mirror, reevaluate myself, and acknowledge the fact that I've had some advantages that black people never had? You know, honestly, it was with, um, you know, it was with Ahmad Arbery. Um, because um, I know you're, you and I are friends on social media, and so you've seen that I've been doing a lot of jogging since we went on quarantine. And so that reality hit me very, very hard when, you know, he went out for a jog and he didn't come back because he was murdered in the streets, wrongfully murdered. That struck, that, that struck me. And I, um, I didn't know exactly what to say. I didn't know how to say it. I just knew that it felt, to me, awful. And I just thought, you know, how privileged am I to be able to go out on the run and not have to worry about, you know, being followed by somebody or having, you know, being looked at with suspicion, you know? And so that, that was a big eye opener for me personally. Mm -hmm. I had one incident when I was teaching in Albuquerque at uh, Grant Middle School. I had a student she was Caucasian, and she rubbed her coat, which was black, on her face, put it on her desk, and said, now my coat is dirty. Wow. And when she said that, all the kids stopped. Oh, wow. They knew that that was wrong what she said, but it hit me. Like a ton of bricks because I never experienced that before except for when I was back home, me and my friend one night in college, we were walking down the street and there was this car and there was two white guys. The white guy on the passenger side said niggers. And me and my friend did a double take, kind of gave that look like, did he just call us that? And then we went about our way. But for me, it just hit me so much to where I immediately called this young lady's father, 
told her what she did, how it made me feel, how it was offensive for me as a black man that mm-hmm. she would say that. And then the next day she ended up writing a letter of apology, which I accepted. And I just used that as a teaching moment to the whole class where when you know better, you do better. And just use the example of just because you haven't been around a lot of black people doesn't mean you have to act a certain way or say things that are derogatory because that's not true. And I think that comes from the limited interactions that we all have amongst each other because on a sidebar coming out here, for me, it was my first interactions with Native Americans. I was completely Mm -hmm. ignorant to the issues of Native Americans. But once I got here and got to know a lot of people who are Native American and become friends with them, come to the realization that, hey, the Native struggle and the African-American struggle are one and the same. Yes. Yes. And, you know, that's, that brings up another good point, you know, something about, you know, checking, you know, checking your privilege. You asked about, you know, when is the time that you experienced that? You know, when did you have this kind of looking at yourself in the mirror? But I also recently have been reading the book um, called So You Want to Talk About Race. And in there, she, the author makes mention of, you know, the fact that she says, if I'm walking down the street and somebody calls me the N-word, you know, that's going to affect me for the rest of my day and it's going to hurt and it's going to, you know, traumatize me. And, you know, whatever the case may be, it may feel, I might feel threatened. Um, if I call somebody, a white person, a cracker, you know, at the worst, I'm going to bum them out for a few minutes. And so even that right there, that privilege is running rampant in our, in our country, even just the way we, that we speak to each other, there's privilege within that. And so even when we're insulting each other. Um, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, it's sad to see. It's sad to see that, that kind of privilege um, take place. So that's why I'm, I'm speaking out about it now because I, I recognize that more and I want to be, I want to be better. I don't want to just do better by my kids, by everybody else. I want to be better. Mm-hmm. And which I think is the first step to reconciliation is that you admit that, hey, I was in the wrong. I want to unlearn my behavior. I want to educate myself because when you messaged me and was asking how I was feeling, that was big because I felt alone where I didn't have a safe space to go to vent my frustrations with everything that was going on. And for you to check up on me with genuine concern, I totally appreciated that wholeheartedly. Now, are you familiar with Jane Elliott? The name sounds familiar. Educator. She did a brown-eyed, blue-eyed experiment back in the 1960s. Okay. Mm -hmm. I've heard of Um, that as well. Yeah. Yeah, so that's how a lot of her students ended up understanding about racism and how wrong it was. And she stated in an interview that she did with Oprah back in the 90s how when she did the experiment, she lost friends, she was harassed, her kids were harassed, and she pretty much said, I don't care if I'm going to lose 
my comfort and everything else that comes with it, I got to speak out on it because wrong is wrong. And these kids need to know what it feels like to be in the shoes of a black boy or a black girl knowing that your school does not have the best textbooks in the world. Your school buildings are dilapidated and are not up to standard. That mom and dad working two or three jobs to put food on the table. That everything is not as it seems with your rose-colored glasses on. That for some people, reality is different. Now, before everything that happened, did you understand beforehand why Colin Kaepernick kneeled? You know, to me, I, I didn't, I don't think I fully, fully understood that, um, to be honest with you. Um, to me, you know, and, and I see what I see. I don't really watch news. I kind of read articles and stuff like that. So I didn't really watch news at the time. So it was just kind of more of this back and forth argument from, you know, two sides of the political uh, you know, political parties, you know, one in support and one totally against. It didn't seem like there was, like, really an in-between, like anyone was kind of like, no, I get what you're saying, I get what he's doing, you need to support this, um, but I understand all these things, all of your concerns as well, which probably was better um, when I think about it. It's, we don't want to, I guess we don't want to justify, you know, the white privilege statements of, I under, I still understand your side of the view, of the of you know, your side of your perspective from this. Um, but it didn't, you know, it didn't quite register with me at the time. Um, I was confused by it. Of course, as an American, I know that every citizen has the right to protest. And to me, it was peaceful, you know. Um, it was peaceful. I still, you know, I still stand for the national anthem. I feel convicted about that as, as an individual. Um, but I've, you know, I've heard, I heard a lot from, military personnel, you know, and even in favor of him, saying, hey, we fight for his right to protest. You know, we, we do that. Um, so to me, it didn't, it, I didn't quite register it. I heard multiple sides and stuff. And so it's all coming, it's all kind of coming to light now with, you know, with the, you know, in the wake of George Floyd's death, things are coming into light now more and more for me. Because mm, when Colin kneeled, he was kneeling for injustice. He was kneeling for police brutality that was going on in our country. And those who are in charge of the media wanted to spin the message, change the narrative to avoid talking about what he really was kneeling for. And because of that, I feel he has gotten blackballed from the NFL. And it was great for me to see the video that was put out recently of a collection of players speaking out and forcing the NFL's hand to make a statement. Roger Goodell recently made a statement, and then Drew Brees put his foot in his mouth by, once again, taking the narrative, deflecting it, making it about what you want to hear when that really wasn't the question. And I think that's where folks who don't look like me have to not look at it from, I'm not racist, I don't see color, and understand and be empathetic to 
what we go through and listen without bias and listen without feeling like we are attacking you because when I hear people say all lives matter, for me, that's the equivalent of you have a child that's been bullied for years, have not been paid attention to, been neglected, but you want to say, well, my kid was bullied too, but your kid has been bullied as long as the other kid has been bullied. So that's how I look at it when people say all lives matter instead of black lives matter, is that you want to take the narrative, make it what you want to hear, and have it be about you when it's not about you. Of course. You get and what I'm saying? Is, yeah, I get, I get what you're saying. And that, to me, again, goes back to, you know, that uncomfortable conversation of, you know, it, people shun that because I think it makes them, it exposes a little bit of their racial biases. Um, and so I think that all lives matter can be used. Um, and there are some people who are probably well-intended, but again, by shining the light and saying, I get what you're saying, but listen, my, my child is being, this, my child is being bullied right now. Black people are being bullied right now. I understand what you're saying, but black people are being bullied right now and their lives are, are what's important. I think by doing that, it exposes um, people who are not of color. It exposes, you know, maybe some racial biases that they have, and they may not even consider themselves to be racist, but it still is that uncomfortable conversation. But as you and I mentioned um, before we started recording, now is, I mean, we have to have these conversations as uncomfortable as it may feel for, you know, anybody to have, um, whether that's a white person with a white person, you know, black people with black people, white with with black people, whoever, like that conversation may be uncomfortable, but we need to have those conversations. Right. And I think that those conversations, white amongst white, have not been had because, like I stated earlier, that it benefits them. Why am I going to talk about an issue that I benefit from and Mm -hmm. have the mindset of, some who are well-intended and compassionate say, my heart goes out to them, but that's their problem. Like, no, it is everybody's problem. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we can't just turn a blind eye and say, that's not my problem. And I feel like for African Americans in this country, that the relationship between African Americans in this country, to me, in a way, feels similar to not to linking it to DV, domestic violence, but you love a country so much, you say, I love you, I love you, I love you, but the other person don't show this love for you by making laws that say you can't achieve and putting barriers in place for you to not be more than what you are. It's constantly kicking you when you're down, but still, again and again, you take them back. You take them back. Yeah, that's a that's a I mean that's a beautiful analogy. That's a I mean yeah, that makes that makes total sense. Um, and it makes sense now. But but I, I what I'm hoping to see with all of this, and I'm seeing it you know a little bit with the protests and you know just different things, is people are starting to speak up for that and say enough is enough. Um, and so I'm I'm glad to see black you know black people stand up for that 
I'm glad to see white people stand up for that too. But you're absolutely right. Like those conversations need to happen, you know, not just, you know, uh, you know, you know, me as a Hispanic coming to you as a black person. It needs to happen, you know, across the board. It needs to happen white people with white people as well to kind of check themselves and to kind of call each other out on that. Um, it's easy for, I think, for white people to get defensive. It's easy for me as a, you know, as a Hispanic man in New Mexico to get defensive and say, whoa, I'm not racist, you know, but like, but when we stop and check, you know, are there racial biases in our heart? Like, you know, are, are there just things that we're just choosing, even if there's not those racial biases, but are we just choosing to turn a blind eye because we have it so good? You know, just because we have it so good does not mean that that is the same for everybody else. And um, and that's why I'm, I've been supporting Black Lives Matter. Right, because I was looking at Governor Duhon Grisham's press conference about what has happened over the past few weeks in our country. And during the chat on the live feed, there were a lot of trolls, but there were people in the chat that were checking them saying, hey, that's totally inappropriate. They were asking, like, when is so-and-so going to open up? Why do we have to watch this press conference? All lives matter. Blue lives matter. I didn't have the patience for it to respond and rebuttal. I was just sitting there just observing while other folks were commenting saying you should be ashamed of yourself. But it just shows that you have some people that don't want to change, that still want to be unlearned and untaught and I look at it as I pray for you I hope that one day your heart and your mind will be changed but in the meantime I'm not going to keep beating myself up to prove to you that I'm not the stereotype and I just pray that you be changed and sadly I just think that's the case with some that don't want to take off the blinders and see that, oh, maybe I have a bias. Maybe I have a prejudice. Maybe I need to be more understanding and more tolerant and watch what I say when I'm in the room having conversations with people that are different from me. And that's totally okay. I think there's a there's a lot of pride in people to say to change their point of view. You know, it's like, oh well, you know, I've I've always believed this, so what are people gonna think if, you know, all of a sudden I come out and say this? It's like, well, maybe people will think that you're, you know, a person who likes to grow, you know, and, and you know, better themselves. You know, maybe they're gonna look at you and say, Oh, this person has seen the truth and they've taken the blinders off. You know, and now they're doing what's right, like, to me. Um, so I, I think it's, it's definitely a pride issue that I think keeps people from, you know, from wanting to learn more and wanting to, to better themselves. Right, because when I first moved out here, this truck was primarily an asset. It was a black truck, and it displayed proudly on the back of the truck a Confederate flag. And for me, I found that shocking because... I didn't think out here in New Mexico I would see a Confederate flag. And by seeing the flag being not allowed at NASCAR events, uh, Confederate statues being taken down 
in mm-hmm. areas across the country, schools that were named after leaders of the Confederacy being renamed. And you have some people combating that and saying, you're saying we can't be proud of our heritage. We're saying that those images, those symbols for a group of people are considered offensive. It is considered to be the sign that says this, it was a time in our country where I was three fifths of a person that I had body parts chopped off me if I tried to run away off the plantation. It said that my master had the will to rape me, have his child, and then sell my child off to another family so that he could make a profit. It says I was brought here against my will. I'm not welcomed here. And that it makes me feel less than a person. When I had that reminder in front of me every day at a park, at a museum, anywhere where anybody can see it in public, it just brings to mind memories of when I was not worth anything and sadly a dog I repeat a dog have more rights and liberties than black folks in this country a dog the thing that flag seeing those you know those statues you know gosh that must be a slap in the it's like a slap in the face I imagine you know it's you know to to display something, you know, that would, you know, because we so, you know, we, we, you know, I have an American flag that hangs in my, you know, in my, off my house. And, you know, I do that as a way of celebrating, you know, and showing this is what my allegiance is to. And this is what, you know, this is, you know, I believe in this. Um, I believe in America and I'm, I'm proud to be an American. So by displaying a flag, like even a Confederate flag, you're displaying that you, you know, I recognize this, but I also go so far as to display it, you know, and, and to show it and, and, you know, with pride. And, and to me, that just seems like, a, you know, a slap in the face to all African-Americans. Yeah, it, it, it definitely is. And my dad, who is a pastor of a church in Columbia, South Carolina, he was telling me that when... He was growing up along with my aunts and uncles that the high school that they graduated from before they went there, it was predominantly white. And it was, had the mascot of the rebels. And once African Americans started to go to that school, they wanted the mascot name changed because they found it offensive. And they ended up changing it to Lakers and there were prominent stores in my hometown that black folks knew you had no business being in local drugstore you couldn't go eat in the front there local restaurant you couldn't eat there the only way you could eat there was you had to go to the walk-up window get your food or you had to go around back 
in the kitchen. That was the way things were to where I'm not good enough to eat in your establishment, but you have people in place that take the culture, benefit off of it, but at the same time you promote a system that says this group of people is superior to the other just because of the color of their skin. And I say that is wrong. That is totally wrong. Especially when you would see entertainers dress up in blackface, mm-hmm. portraying to be black with big red fire lipstick and the black on their face from burning the cork and displaying the mannerisms of African Americans, how it made us feel when we see that or how when we hear white kids, non-people who are black say the N-word in a rap song or dress as us as caricatures for Halloween, thinking that being black is like being in a costume that you can get at Party City. I am not a costume. My skin doesn't come off. I can't easily take this skin off. I am black at the end of the day. I can't switch races. God made me who he made me. I'm a black man in America. And I look at myself in the mirror every day and say, I'm black. I have to uphold to a higher standard. I have to be a role model. I have to be the only one in the room to make sure that when another one comes behind me, not to mess up. Because there's been a saying in the African-American community when it comes to being in the workplace where it's not a lot of you. You're the last hired, first fired. And when you look at the NFL, 70% of the players are black, but only three minority head coaches. Hmm. Let me repeat. 70% players black, only three minority head coaches. But I think that that needs to change where when you have a lot of these teams, a lot of them are ran like mom and pop shops. Where granddaddy brought the team, passed it down to his son, and then it's going to get passed down to his son. So it stays in the family, and it still has that feel of a good old boys network. And I think when we take a look at inclusion and diversity in the workplace, I know for me sometimes it feels like where am I really hired for my merit that I'm a good fit for the job 
or is it mainly to fill a quota? Mm-hmm. And you and you right. kind of you kind of feel that way when you're the only one in the room. Which, like I said, prior to coming to New Mexico, I never had to deal with. It was totally brand new, and feeling like you had to code switch to where I have my foot in one world, my foot in the other world, and I have to navigate between the two is you are in the double consciousness that you're living in two worlds and that we as a country have been living in two Americas. The A side is for white America and the B side is black America. A side gets played all the time in heavy rotation. B side gets ignored. That's why it's mm-hmm. on the back because people doesn't don't really think about the play. Mm-hmm. And I think that is where the conversation has to change amongst people who are in power, people who are not in power but who have privilege to look at themselves and say, when I see or hear my white friend say something racist, I'm going to call him out on it. When I recognize my privilege and my neighbor says, why are you talking about this? I don't want to hear it. Say, no, you need to hear it. We need to talk about it. We need to stand. We cannot let this go idly by anymore. Because as the late Fannie Lou Hamer so eloquently put it, we are sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I think that right now we as a country, what we're seeing right now, not only in the U.S., but all over the world, we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And it's amazing to see the younger generation that's after us, Generation Z, using social media, TikTok, Facebook, Mm -hmm. Instagram, Snapchat, WhatsApp, any social media app using technology to advance the cause and to say, we're not going to stand for it because look at them. They're more integrated than what we were. And we're just only a generation removed from them. Mm -hmm. To see people who don't know English as a native language stand in solidarity with us. It's huge. And I think this time in our country right now is going to have the same impact like Sunday, Bloody Sunday, down in Selma, Alabama, over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where Americans saw firsthand on the NBC Evening News the horror that went on where they were protesting peacefully. The police met them down at the bottom, and they just charged them. They were doing nothing but marching peacefully. And that's Mm -hmm. displayed in the movie Selma. Um, If you don't know, the movie Just Mercy, starring Michael B. Jordan, Brie Lawson, Jamie Foxx, has been made for free on digital platforms by Warner Brothers. 
good movie. There's a whole bunch of movies and books that people of non-color can use to educate themselves on the issues, the atrocities that African Americans have held to deal with in this country and are still and dealing with. And that's and that's so great that the that there's so many resources available. Um just yesterday and I I just watched thirteenth, um, the Netflix documentary um regarding, you know, the, the change, you know, the thirteenth amendment, but that one little clause in there, unless, you know, unless you commit a crime. You know, everybody, no one shall be made a slave unless you commit a crime. Um, that one little clause in there kind of opened up, you know, the door to things like, you know, the war on drugs, um, you know, the, you know, the mass incarceration, which they have on file, which they have on record. You know, the Nixon uh, campaign direct um, advisor had said by, you know, we couldn't wage war on black people and, you know, the anti-war people. That was illegal. But we knew that heroin, we knew that marijuana was illegal. So by, and they said, and the advisor said this, by getting the American people to associate the hippies with marijuana and the black people with heroin, we could villainize them at night on the meeting news. We could, you know, arrest their leaders. We could break up, you know, major parties and, you know, their, their agenda that they wanted to push. And so there's, been like so it's been eye opening to watch these kind of documentaries and just really get more educated on the systemic racism in our country. And um I don't know, I there's I turned on Netflix yesterday and instead of taking me to the main menu of like here's everything that you watch or whatever, it gave me an option of, hey, we've created a list of, you know, documentaries and films um regarding black culture, Black Lives Matter. Um, things like that. And so, you know, Black History in America, would you like that option to watch those? And I was like, absolutely. So um, last night I'd watched one on the death of Sam Cooke, which was eye-opening to me. I had no idea that Sam Cooke was even considered to be, you know, an activist connected with Malcolm X and, you know, Muhammad Ali. And so, um, yeah, I think it's great that there are, you know, more sites are even reaching out to make it even more accessible um, to people to educate themselves. So I'm I'm benefiting from this tremendously. Mm-hmm. And the 13th, which was directed by Ava DuVernay, speaking about the prison comp, prison industrial complex, about how yeah. a lot of these private prisons profit yeah. off of. You coming back in, when you come out, they don't want the recidivism rates to be high. They want it to be low because that fills their sales. And mentioned marijuana and how Colorado is a state where rec use is legal, how a lot of dispensaries and stores have been popping up, but not a lot of African Americans have been able to get into that space and how you're doing maybe a 10, 20 year bid off a little dime bag, but I can't get my sentence commuted because of the way that the books set up. Because when the war on drugs started, you can have a big number of grams of Coke, mm-hmm. but when it's crack, exactly. When it's crack, 
something so small can impact you so big, can set you back in so many ways. Because once you got a felony on your record, you're hemmed up. You can't do anything. Voting rights, stripped. Can't get a loan. Can't go to school. Can't get an apartment. You can't work because you got to check the box. Exactly. So it's almost set up to where we want you back here with us. You make us money, boy or girl. We want you to stay in that cell because you are a dollar sign and a number. So we're not going to give you your voting rights back. We're not going to allow you to work. If you really want that to change, you should give these companies incentives for hiring people that have just came out of prison and to do more for them. Because I used to work at this nonprofit as well when I was in Albuquerque called Wings for Life, ran by Ann Edenfield Sweet. She worked with people who are just reentering, either out of prison or a men's or women's treatment facility. And you give them skills so that they can be able to take to wherever they go so that they can better their lives. And not go back to jail or go back to where they once were. And a lot of them ended up doing well for themselves. And I think it just has to be a complete teardown where you take a wrecking ball to everything that this country has ever known. And you got to rebuild it from the ground up. Just implode the whole thing. And rebuild it from scratch. Mm. That's what I think it's going to take. And there is a Netflix series that's very good. It's called When They See Us, also directed by Ava DuVernay. It's about the Central Park Five. If you're not familiar with it, Google it, look it up. But very eye opening. And had me boiling at how the justice system so unjust to African Americans, especially if you're a minor. There's plenty of other movies, other documentaries you can watch. It's it's on Google and I just implore everybody at the sound of my voice that are that is non color. Educate yourself. Look at resources. Call out people on their ways. Be tolerant. Be accepting. And just know that racism is taught. It's learned. Absolutely. You're not born racist. You are learned. You are taught to be racist. And I think most of the time it's out of ignorance. Because you don't know no better. Because, Mm -hmm. like I stated earlier, you live in an area where it's not that many African Americans. I lived in an area where it's not that many white people. So, therefore, you are ignorant to the other because you have no experience. But once you have the experience, you can combat that and say, no, 
that's wrong because I know somebody that's black or I know somebody who's native Hispanic or white and they're not like this. You take the time out to get to know a person and not judge them by the color of their skin but by the content of their character as the late great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said. Now, I'm sure for a lot of young kids, it's a hard time for them to understand. But I would recommend to any educator who have kids that are in pre-K, kindergarten, maybe first, second, first, second grade. There was a town hall that CNN did in collaboration with Sesame Street. And Elmo was asking his father, about Black Lives Matter and why they were protesting. And I felt that they put it in a way that was kid-appropriate that they could understand what was going on. So I would recommend that for parents, educators of young children, go find that online. It's uh, CNN Town Hall in collaboration with Sesame Street. And I think that's a very good resource and I can I can just say really quickly I I appreciate the resources here um, and I hope you don't mind I've been taking like notes about things that we've talked about and um, resources you know things that you've mentioned so you've mentioned Selma you mentioned the mercy just Mer- or the movie just mercy and, and the series when they see us but now you've also given me something to do because that's the that was the question that I that I actually have for you is where do I start with kids? What's a good place to start with, with you know little kids? You know, I mean these are big things that are happening and they're not blinded to it. They've obviously seen it um, on some form of social media or the news, so they they're aware of what's going on. But I appreciate so much, Darrell, that you're you know providing me with you know resources here for me to number one educate myself, but also educate my children, you know, in the future. You know, to educate mm. my students that I have. So I appreciate that very, very much. Um, mm. I will say it was kind of, you know, it's very similar to COVID. When COVID hit, there were so many resources and free online programs and just so many things coming at you. And then in the wake of George Floyd's death, I felt the same thing. There's just like an immense amount of, you know, resources coming out to educate yourself, and it can be overwhelming. So I, like, Jarell, I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so, so much for providing me with um, some places to start and some places, well, I've started, but some places to, con- some things to do to continue, you know, to educate myself. So I appreciate that very, very much. Right. It is definitely a learning moment for everybody. And I think because of COVID and everything kind of being stopped, it's forcing everybody to take off the blinders, take mm-hmm. off the earphones and listen and hear. And hopefully keep them off. You know, um, somebody made a statement and they were just, just making an observation. They said, this is going to blow over. And I was shocked by that statement. I thought, how can something this big with this momentum get, you know, just blow over? And they said, well, that's the pattern. That's the pattern in, in, our, in American history. And they, and they said, I hope it doesn't. I hope change comes. But 
they, they worry. They, was, they were expressing it out of worry, not just out of like, oh, it's going to blow over. It was more out of a concern of like, I have a feeling this is just going to blow over. And so I hope that people keep the blinders off. They keep, you know, and they stay focused and they don't turn the blind eye and that they keep speaking out. Right. And that's where you have to keep the foot on the gas. When everything exactly. gets back to normal, you can't just stop and say, oh, we had our nice little kumbaya, we are the world moment. No, this is ongoing dialogue that everybody still needs to have and that it doesn't stop here. This is only the beginning. And, and it can't, and it can't stop with, you know, it can't stop just at, you know, the CNN Sesame Street Town Hall. You know, educators have to continue to pursue this, you know, with, with you know, they really have to push for this. Um, I believe that, you know, and just simply because, you know, like we mentioned, I, you know, obviously I was homeschooled, so I didn't go to public school, but I didn't even have a black college professor. And reading through that thread, there were so many people that were like, I didn't have a professor until I was a senior, or I never had, um, you know, a, a black teacher. So, you know, the black community, I feel like, is not, you know, represented. Jarrell, to be honest, you're the first black teacher that I knew. And so, you know, and that was, you know, after teaching, that was going into my fourth year. So in four years, you know, I hadn't met a single black teacher. And so the conversation needs to continue to be pushed, especially in the schools and teaching things like anti-racism and, you know, making kids aware of the systemic racism and, you know, privileges that, you know, people who are not of color have in this country. And to, I, I don't know, I just, I keep going back to that. Um, there's, there's a phrase that the staff room podcast uses, inspire, don't require. And I think that's the key is we have to continue to inspire kids to make the change and to be the change. Um, you mentioned it earlier, racism is taught. That means that anti-racism can be taught as well. And I think right. that it falls on the responsibility of the teachers um, you know, somebody mentioned today in a conversation that I was having, it takes a village to raise a child. And that's so true. Um, it does, you know, they, it does take parents at home. It does take teachers at school, um, daycare workers, you know, um, child care workers at, at, even at churches, I believe, have a responsibility to, to teach anti-racism. I really do. And so mm-hmm. it's going to take, it's going to take that community effort and everybody having, you know, their, you know, their vision, you know, sticking to this vision of we want equality for all, we want justice for all. Um, no one should be discriminated against in any form because of their skin. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's a lot of this kind of falls back on the teachers as well to continue the conversation um, with their students so they leave school, you know, prepared to, you know, make the changes. And right. Right. And what was it like for you going to various teaching conferences and workshops where you interacted amongst African-American educators and just hearing their stories? Uh, you know, I I appreciated it. Um, you know, I went to the Teach Better conference um, last year, uh, well, last school year, so that would have been in November. Um, and again, it was, you know, looking around the room, it's primarily white, um, it's primarily females, um, there's a handful of male teachers in there and an even smaller handful of, 
you know, black educators. And so it was, that was kind of the thing that in a way kind of started, I started thinking about it. And I've always known, you know, the, the, the number of male teachers in school setting is a lot less than the number of females. Teaching is predominantly a female, um, you know, profession. And not, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, in a sexist way that, you know, females are more likely to teach than males. Nothing at all. That's just kind of the nature of what, you know, that's just an observation. And so, um, so I kind of have known that, but just being a little more aware of it, you know, and kind of, you know, seeing this has made me more aware that the black community is not represented in education as strongly as it should be. Mm, I definitely feel that way. And then if you look at colleges, universities, PWIs, predominantly white institutions, are funded way more than HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. And HBCUs are still an integral resource to our country, to the world, because they produce pretty much mostly the black doctors, lawyers, judges. It allowed African Americans to be able to get a high-quality education at a time where you couldn't go to a predominantly white school. It allowed you the ability to be able to move into the middle class to have that better life. And it's where your blackness is celebrated, not tolerated. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It is celebrated. It is not tolerated. It is a great pride, great tradition at our HBCUs. And that's, I think, that's that's important to, I think you've, uh, I mean, that's a great choice of words there. It's celebrated, not just tolerated. Um, and I think that's the direction that schools need to take as well. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have suggestions about, you know, how to do that? You've, you've brought up resources, Jarrell, for, you know, kind of sparking that conversation. But how do, where do we go from there? You know, how do we continue to celebrate, um, you know, black culture in, in our schools? How do we, and I say we as, as, I'm just referring to all teachers in general, but primarily, you know, if, if there's, if those students don't, if black students don't have a black teacher, how does that teacher, what does that teacher really need to do to represent and, you know, be be there for that kid and be the one for that student to make a difference in that student's life. You know, um, you know what's, your, what's your kind of take on that there? I would say be understanding, be empathetic to their needs, to their issues, and just be a listening ear. Because on one hand, you can't relate because you're not African-American. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. you can be understanding and willing to hear and willing to learn. Because whether you know it or not, they're teaching you, you're teaching them. And then I think the one thing for Black History Month that most schools don't do a good enough job of, they don't do a good enough job of going beyond 
you know, your Martin Luther King's, Rosa Parks, and teaching about people and events that they may not know about. Because I was reading online that the show Watchmen, that was on HBO, that was starring Regina mm-hmm. King, not a lot of people knew about the Tulsa race riot until Watchmen. Oh, wow. Not a lot of people knew about that. Not a lot of people know about Rosewood down in Florida. There's a lot of black history that has not been taught in schools. But I feel like you can put it in there in a way to where this is black history too. But not just it's confined to just black history. It's American history. Not a lot of people knew about Nat Turner's Rebellion before the movie Birth of a Nation, which I felt the title alone was a reappropriation of a movie title that denigrated black people. And it Mm -hmm. started the rise of the KKK. That movie directed by D.W. Griffin, they showed that movie in the White House. That's absolutely right, yeah. They showed that movie in the White House. And Nat Turner's Rebellion happened 45, 50 minutes away from where I lived in North Carolina in southeastern Virginia. Only stayed 45, 50 minutes where it happened. So I just think it just comes down to just really educating yourself beyond what schools teach you. And just make sure that you have enough tools in your toolkit to be able to say, hey, I have this information for you. It is American history, and we need to do better in making sure that as educators, we prepare our kids to go out into a global workforce where they're going to be interacting with people that are different from them. And that they get the message earlier that you're not going to be around people that look just like you. You're going to be interacting with people who are different. And it's up to you to understand and accept that I am different. But being different is what makes this country, America, beautiful. Absolutely. Very well said. And before we conclude, I want to give a shout out to everybody that's on the front lines protesting, everybody that's using their voice, speaking out against the wrongs of racism. And I want to give a very, 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 very special shout out to Tamika Mallory. Tamika Mallory is my cousin. She's been on the front lines since she was yay high. Ever since her days with National Action Network with Reverend Al Sharpton. She's been on the front line in Minneapolis. She's been on the front line down in Florida. She's been on the front line wherever there's injustice. She's been there. So I want to give a shout out to you, Tamika, from your cousin. Keep doing your thing. 
Keep fighting for us and never, ever stop using your voice. I appreciate it. We appreciate it. And keep on keeping on. Absolutely. And stay safe. And stay safe. Yeah, stay safe, people. If you're down there protesting, stay safe. Definitely watch yourself while you're out there because there's been instances of folks who are not a part of the peaceful protest that's out there looting and destroying buildings. So definitely be safe. My laws, curfews, wear your mask. We're still in COVID. But most importantly, be willing to listen. Be willing to speak the truth. Admit your truth. Admit your biases. Admit your faults. Admit your wrongs. Atone from them. Start anew. And be like George Michael right now. Listen without prejudice. My name is Jarrell Mason. This has been Beyond the Cover. Thank you for listening. Go to anchor.fm slash jmace to hear this podcast along with others. Once again, thank you.